This Parsha podcast is dedicated in the merit of the complete and total and swift recovery, the Rafushalema of Fega Bat Rachel. The plan today is to cover two things. It is, of course, Parshas Vayikra, and we're starting a new book, the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. And it has become somewhat of a Parsha podcast tradition that when we begin a new book of the Torah, we read the Ramban's introduction to that book to orient ourselves for the book ahead. So we're going to go through the Ramban's comment in his introduction to the book. And likewise, I guess we could say that it's become somewhat of a tradition in its own right. We're going to share an idea related to the Parsha and also related to the events that are surrounding us, the events that are dominating the world headlines, maybe give a new way to think about this virus and all the tremendous upheaval that it is causing around the world. So Rabban, in his introduction, of course, he's going to outline the book. He's going to frame it for us. And in his introduction, he's going to show the continuous thread that is strung throughout the book of Leviticus. And he begins by telling us this book has another name. It's called the Torah's Kohanim, the guide of the Kohanim of the priests and the Levites. And in this book, says the Ramban, it's going to explain to us, it's going to elaborate for us the laws of the sacrifices and all the rules that are governing the Mishnah. Of course, the book of Exodus that we just finished concluded with basically five parshios dedicated to the building and the construction and the erection finally of the mission of the tabernacle. And now we're going to find out what we do inside the tabernacle, what are the roles of the Kohanim, of the priests, and the Levim, the Levites, in governing and overseeing and monitoring and maintaining the Mishkan. And then the Ramban adds something which I found very interesting. He tells us that we just finished a book, the book of Exodus, the book of Shmos, which talks about the Yedzel, the suffering, the enslavement in Egypt, and the subsequent redemption, the Exodus. And it concludes with the building of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and the presence of God that descended upon the Mishkan, upon the tabernacle. And that, of course, was the last few sentences, the last few verses of the book. Immediately following that, says the Ramban, there is the instruction of the sacrifices and all the laws governing the Mishkan, governing the tabernacle. Why? So that the sacrifices shall be an atonement for the Jewish people and that will not cause that the sins of the Jewish people will cause the Almighty to leave, to depart from us, the Jewish people, to depart from the Mishkan. To me, this was very interesting because typically we think, or the way I thought initially, ostensibly you would think, that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is there because there are lots of things that need to happen in it. And throughout the book of Leviticus, we're going to talk about all the various different sacrifices that are done on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, the voluntary sacrifices that people could bring, the various times in people's lives where, where they have to bring sacrifices, and you need a venue to do the sacrifices. And therefore, we're building the Mishkan in order to facilitate the sacrifices that are done inside the Mishkan. The Rabban says that, no, that's the exact opposite. It's not that the sacrifices are the goal of the Mishkan, the goal of the tabernacle. What we do inside the Mishkan is not the goal, the objective, the aim 
of building Mishkan. Rather, it is the means to prevent sin from causing God to leave it. The Mishkan, the goal, the role of the Mishkan is to have a place where God dwells amongst us. The fact that we're doing sacrifices in the Mishkan, the primary reason for that is to ensure that we cleanse ourselves from sin, we purge any spiritual maladies from within us, and that will ensure that the Almighty will not depart us. And the Rabbi goes on to explain that everything that follows in this book is going to follow logically from this idea. We have God amongst us. We've built the Mishkan. The Almighty has dwelled within it. And now we're going to ensure that we're going to maintain our holiness, to maintain our spiritual standing as a people worthy of having the Almighty dwell amongst us. And if we do have sins, right away we're going to address them by atoning for them and by repenting and by ensuring that we do the sacrifices and whatever is needed to make sure that we're not going to banish God from amidst us. And the Rabbi goes on to explain that the Kohanim, they have to be careful to not become impure. Because if they do become impure, then again, that's going to evict God, so to speak, or propel God away from the Jewish people. And they also have to make sure, and these are also laws that are enumerated in the book, they have to make sure to not walk in in the improper time. There are stages of holiness, gradients of holiness in the tabernacle, and not everyone could walk into all parts at all times. Of course, the holiest is the holiest of holy, that only the high priest, only Aaron, can walk in only on Yom Kippur. And the Ramban adds another thing. This is similar to the instructions surrounding the Mount Sinai revelation, of course, in the book of Exodus, where the nation was told, don't get too close to the mountain, don't touch the mountain, the people who touch will die. And this, by the way, is the Ramban, in accordance to his understanding in the book of Exodus, where he explained that the mist of the tabernacle is a spiritual air, a spiritual continuation of the Sinai experience. It's almost we had Sinai. The body was close to us at Sinai. And now we're given the instructions to perpetuate that in this portable Sinai in this Mishkan. And thus it's fitting, just as with the Sinai experience itself, we're told not to get too close to the mountain, not to touch it, to be far away, to make a perimeter around it, to maintain the sanctity of the mountain where God's presence is going to descend upon the mountain. Similarly, with the mission as well, we're told about all the restrictions. Don't come too close when you're impure. Purify yourself. Make sure that you're spiritually worthy of being in such hallowed territory. Don't walk into certain places and the like. And then once we're told these laws, explains the Ramban, there are the laws of sacrifices. The majority of the book deals with sacrifices and all the laws surrounding the sacrifices. And also included in this book are any of the related mitzvos that relate to sacrifices. And he outlines us that we have the book beginning with the voluntary sacrifices and what is and what's not included in the offerings. And then we talk about the sacrifices related to sin. And then the book pivots to talking about the forbidden foods. Why? Because the foods cause impurity. And just as the central aim of the book of Leviticus is to 
ensure that we're not going to do anything that's going to cause God to leave us. We're also not going to imbibe. We're not going to absorb anything that's going to cause us to lose our purity and thus become disqualified from the holiness that is present in the Mishkan and when the Jewish people have the Almighty dwelling within them. In addition, if someone eats or even touches certain non-kosher foods, that could disqualify a coin from entering the sanctuary, and therefore it is germane to this book. And then he says the book talks about the laws of Mitzorah. Mitzorah is someone who has the spiritual malady of, of splotches appearing on their skin, the laws of a yoledes, that's a woman who has a baby, and a zav and a zava, these are people, men and women, that have certain emissions that come out of their body. Why are these laws found in our book? And he explains because there is a sacrifice associated with each one of these statuses, and therefore it is relevant to the book that deals with sacrifices, and also because this is within the realm of impurity and the objective of the book is to avoid impurity and thus to maintain the closeness that we have with God in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. And after that, says the Ramban, the next subject matter is the forbidden relationships. And that too is relevant, is germane, is pertinent to the themes of the book. Why? Because that could cause impurity. And of course, if it causes impurity, the Kohen and any Jew essentially cannot walk into the perimeter, into the area of the tabernacle. Moreover, says the Ramban, sins of this kind, sins in the realm of forbidden relationship, they cause impurity and they cause the Almighty to depart from the Jewish people and to plunge the nation into exile. And now we're at the peak of closeness between the Jewish people and God. He is dwelling amongst us. And therefore, we're going to be told all the things that could potentially imperil that closeness. And therefore, we're told about all the forbidden relationships. Moreover, once someone does that, in the event someone does that by mistake, accidentally, there is a sacrifice that they would do to atone for that. And afterwards, says the Ramban, we're told the laws of Shabbos and the various festivals because there are special sacrifices that are associated with those special days. And the Ramban concludes that the majority of the parshios of the Torah sections in this book, they deal with matters relevant to the Kohanim, to the priests, Speak to Aaron, speak to his children, command Aaron, command his children. Again, this is the Torah's Kohanim. This is the laws of the Kohanim. And finally, says the Ramban, in Parshas Kedoshim, there are going to be mitzvot that are relevant to the, all the Jewish people. And these are also going to be tangentially related to sacrifices and to purity, and the Rabban will explain each one of these mitzvos in their correct time. So that's the introduction to the book that we get from the Rabban, the idea that there is holiness, there is purity amongst the Jewish people, they have God in their midst, and therefore that necessitates certain behavior, that necessitates withholding from certain behavior, and that is the objective of this book. That's the first thing that I wanted to share in this week's Parsha podcast. But I want to elaborate on one of these ideas and see maybe a lesson that we could take away from this introduction of the Ramban and the subject matter of this book and maybe relate it to the events that are surrounding us and dominating our lives during these trying weeks and trying days of this worldwide pandemic. So the idea of purity and impurity. 
holiness and defilement. Tuma and Tahara, as they're called in Hebrew. I think there is a very deep connection between this idea and the idea of a virus. Impurity has a certain degree of virality to it and transmissibility to it. And I think there's a very deep lesson that we could draw. There's probably many of them, but there's one of them that I want to share. So the way this works, impurity, and it's something we struggle a lot with, doesn't make sense to us, but I think this virus is maybe a window into understanding it. So there's many, many laws relating to purity and impurity. And in fact, the oral law, the Mishnah, has 63 books broken down into six general categories called the six orders of the Mishnah or the Shisha Sidre Mishnah. If you ever heard the term Shas, the term Shas to describe all of Talmud, all of Mishnah, that is an acronym for Shisha Siddharam, the six orders of Mishnah. One of them, the last one, is called Seder Taharos, which means the order that deals with purity and impurity. So it's almost as if we could say that one-sixth of all of Torah, one-sixth of all of oral Torah, is dedicated to this very murky idea for us, purity and impurity. Of course, we tend to misattribute it and say it's dirtiness or there's something wrong with someone who is impure. And of course, on certain circumstances, someone's a sin, they become impure, and that would indeed be some lacking, some void that's present in the person, but in general, this whole idea that someone has a spiritual status, they're pure, they're impure, there are all these different levels and all these different categories of impurity, what is the idea here? And what's the lesson for us? So I think one idea is that, like we mentioned, the idea of virality and transmissibility. There is gradients of impurity. So for example, if there is a dead body, a cadaver, a corpse, in Halachic literature, that is described as avi avos hatuma, which means the granddaddy, the father of the father of impurity. Someone goes and touches that. Someone is in close proximity to that corpse, to that cadaver. They become a father of impurity. And then someone touches that person. That person touches someone else. And then there's a first level of impurity, a second level of impurity, a third, a fourth level of impurity. I think this is an interesting parallel to the world that we're living in today, a parallel to the world of virality and infection and transmissibility. There's something that's intangible and that's invisible, but it could hop from one person to another person and influence them in a negative way. Whenever there is an outbreak, there's always this search for patient zero, who was this one person who got it somehow and then began to spread it. And I think the idea is that people are interconnected. People are not isolated. And whatever one person has, that can extend to another person. People don't live in a vacuum siloed off from all of humanity. People influence others. And I think this is, of course, true with the virus. It's true with impurity, but it's also true in the realm of actions. Actions don't live in a vacuum. So maybe an example of this, in the story of Cain and Abel, 
in the beginning, of course, of Genesis, we have a murder. And God comes to Cain and says to him, where's your brother? And he, of course, responds, Hashomer, Achianochi, am I my brother's keeper? But God tells him, the bloods of your brother are crying out to me from the ground. And the Talmud and Rashi already, they ask the question, I don't understand, how many people did Cain kill? Cain killed his brother, Cain killed Abel, and of course he's a murderer, and this is unconscionable, this is fratricide, but why does the verse describe it as the bloods, plural, of your brother? Isn't only the blood of your brother? So Rashi tells us that no, Cain killed a lot more than one person. He killed perhaps, I don't know, a hundred billion people. Why? Because he killed Abel, but by killing Abel, he prevented Abel from having his own children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren all the way for eternity. According to the experts, there's been maybe a hundred billion people that have lived throughout all of, all of history. That's only via Cain, so to speak. And therefore, maybe there's a hundred billion more people that could have lived over the course of history. And all those people were murdered by Cain. Well, what we're told here is that the Almighty views every action with all the possible extensions, repercussions, ramifications of that action. And that's the idea, of, again, of one action. One person can infect millions of people. One person can kill millions of people by killing only one person because that action just keeps on living and keeps on extending further and further out. In the book of Exodus, we read about another murder, shall we say, or another execution. This time it's Moshe killing an Egyptian who was striking a Hebrew, striking one of his brethren. And you look at Rashi, you find something interesting. The verse says that Moshe looks to and fro and he sees that there is no man. So simply put, Moshe is worried about what he's going to do. He looks right, looks left, make sure no one's watching. If no one's watching, he'd go and put the Egyptian down. Rashi says something different. Rashi says he looked to and fro. He examined the potential history and future accomplishments of this person. Not only this person, any future descendants that may have emanated from that person. And he wanted to find, was there anyone righteous amongst this person's potential descendants. Because if Moshe is going to put this person down, if Moshe is going to execute this Egyptian, he recognizes he's killing not only this one Egyptian in front of him, he's killing every single future potential descendant from that person. Just like when Cain killed someone, he killed not just his brother, he killed all the future descendants. Moshe is killing this Egyptian, and all the future descendants, are, is, anyone, is anyone there righteous? He looked to and fro and he found that there is no man. There is no righteous potential descendant from this Egyptian. And therefore, it's okay to kill not only him, but all his future descendants. And the Talmud enshrines this idea in the book of Sanhedrin. If you, God forbid, someone, God forbid, kills one person, it's as if they destroyed the whole world. Because the whole world could come from one person. But here's the clincher. Conversely, if someone upholds, if someone saves a person, well, then it's as if they have upheld, as if they've saved the whole world. We talk about impurity. 
We talk about the virus. We talk about, God forbid, a case of a homicide, a murder. And we see how the action, the way it's viewed by God, the way it's viewed by the Torah, it's amplified a thousandfold, a millionfold, infinite fold because of everything else that resulted, that rippled out of that action. That's on the negative side. But that is equally true on the positive side. If you save one person, you've saved not only them, any future descendants, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, for eternity, all that is attributable back to the original action of saving someone. Just as we say the virus and spirituality on the negative side is infectious on the positive side as well. The spiritual reward and benefit for one action is not siloed off, is not isolated in the action itself, but everything that stems from it, everything that comes out of it, all that is accrued back to the one who initiates it. When we're dealing with the virus, we're worried about the exponential effect of the action. You know, when we're dealing with this whole virus, everyone's learning all these new words, this new vocabulary. So there's a term called the R-naught factor, which essentially is trying to figure out how contagious a given virus is. And if the number is one, that means that every one person will in all likelihood infect one other person. If it's a half, then every person will only infect a half and eventually it'll die out. But if it's two, then one person will infect two people, and that two will go on to infect four people, and then eight, and then 16, and 32. And before you know it, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. There's, of course, on the infectious side of the virus, there's the potential of compounding of exponential growth on the negative side. But we're taught that on the positive side, that too is true. The great Rabbi Akiva, he's someone who began his life as an ignoramus. He didn't know Torah. Maybe even he didn't want to know Torah. But he has an epiphany. And he decides to dedicate his life to Torah study. And one person inspired him. And one person said, I'm behind you. I'm going to stand by you a thousand percent. I'm willing to suffer to ensure that you can go study. That, of course, is his wife. And Rabbi Kiva goes for 12 years, and he becomes a great Torah scholar, and he has 12,000 students. Then he comes back home, because that was the agreement, and his wife tells him, okay, go back for another 12 years. And after 24 years of cumulative study, he has 24,000 students, and he's the greatest rabbi in the land. And he's returning back home, and they roll out the red carpet for him. He's the greatest hero in the land. And his wife, of course, wants to join and wants to see him. So she's trying to elbow her way to the front. And the Talmud Book of Nadarim, page 50a, tells us that the students thought it was improper. Who is this lady coming in trying to go meet the great Rabbi Kiva? And Rabbi Kiva tells everyone, Sheli v'shelachem shelah. My Torah. Your Torah. It really all belongs to her. It's all her Torah. She sent me. I went to study. I studied for 24 years. Who gets the merit? Who gets the reward of that 24 years? It's all her. Well, I didn't study myself. 
I also taught it to you. And therefore, you get it from me, I get it from her. My Torah, your Torah, is all attributable back to her. And by the way, what happens subsequently, if these 24,000 students each want to teach their children and teach their communities, again, that is all rooted back in the action of Rachel, Rachel, the wife of Rabbi Kiva, sending him to go study. And by the way, the Talmud says that all the Torah that we have all comes via the line of Rabbi Kiva. And therefore, we could say that all the Torah that we're studying, if we study today on this podcast, who gets the merit of that? It goes all the way back to Rabbi Kiva, but also who sent Rabbi Kiva? It all goes back to his wife. The same idea. Exponential growth on the negative side, but it's even more true on the positive side. The Mishnah tells us in Perkei Avos chapter 5, Mishnah 18, if someone influences others, they will have no sin. If someone positively influences others, there's no sin in their hands. Whereas if someone causes others to sin, there's no way for them to repent. And some of the commentaries explain this idea based upon our principle. If I inspire others to do good, their merit accrues back to me. Their merit is added to my, so to speak, spiritual coffers. And therefore, my rewards are amplified so much that it's going to drown out any sin that I have. And I saw a very interesting comment by the Ben Yehoyad, by, by, by the Ben Eshchai. He's talking about the Talmud. The Talmud is discussing someone who was empty, someone who's an Amma Aretz, someone who's a total ignoramus. Yet the Talmud says, they are full of mitzvos like a pomegranate. So there used to be a belief that if you open up a pomegranate, there's 613 seeds because that's how many mitzvos there are. That's not what the Talmud actually means. What Talmud means is that they're bursting with mitzvos just like the pomegranate is bursting with seeds. Now, how can you say that someone who is empty is bursting, is full? Are they empty or are they full? And the way he explains this is based upon this principle. If you have an Amma Arts, you have someone who's empty, but they do one mitzvah, and they're excited, and they're joyous, and they have energy to do that mitzvah. Everyone who sees that says, oh my, if this empty person is doing this mitzvah, I certainly should do that same mitzvah. What happens? That one deed gets multiplied many, many times over. And thus, it turns out, that this person did one mitzvah, but the result of that is everyone else decided to emulate them. They indirectly caused other people to do mitzvahs as well, and that all accrues back to them. Very deep insight. It's not only when I actively inspire someone to do a mitzvah. I send Rabbi Kiva to go study. Much more than that. Even if people only witness me, they see me and they indirectly inspired that already is accrued back to me. Their mitzvahs can be attributed to my merit. So I think when we're talking about all the negative of this horrific virus, and we hope, of course, the Almighty watches over all of us and all the Jewish people and all of our brethren in Israel and the whole world, the idea, I think, is a very powerful idea that there is virality in spirituality. There's impurity, which is one of the main subjects of our book, one of the main subjects of Torah, and that gets transmitted. 
And thus, I have to be careful because I can influence others in a negative way. And if I do a sin and other, people's cop- other people copy it, well, that sin is also attributable to me. Of course, it's still attributable to them because everyone has their own free will. But if I cause someone else to sin, I'm a sinner who makes other people sin. Those sins get accrued to me. Terrible. But on the flip side, it's something very powerful. If I do a mitzvah and I inspire others, whether directly or indirectly, their mitzvahs are also attributable back to me. I think this gives us at least two important lessons, two important takeaways from this idea. The Chovas Avavas, this is a 12th century classic book of Jewish philosophy. He writes a scary idea. He says that the merits of someone who is a believer, someone who's doing good, they're righteous, they do mitzvot, they're a good person. And even if they're perfect, they completely perfect themselves, they're almost like an angel, still they're not as meritorious as a regular person who's doing the right thing, but also bringing their brethren along with them. And he gives an, an analogy. You have two business people. One of them sells one item for a thousand percent profit. You think he might be rich, but his neighbor, he just, he does, he just wants a smaller profit margin, but he makes it up on volume. Which one of those two is going to end up being a lot richer? One person made a crazy margin, a thousand percent profit. Amazing. But if he only did it for himself, how much is he actually going to net? Whereas the other person doesn't change himself that radically, but made sure that they bring 10 other people with them, 100 other people with them, inspire other people to also do good. Well, then, even if the actual margin is much less, but because of the volume, they're going to end up being a lot richer. And thus concludes the Chavos Avavos. So too, if you have a person who only fixes themselves, their merit is going to be rel- relatively very little, very minimal. However, someone who fixes their own soul and the souls of many others, their merits are going to be multiplied many times over and they're going to have blessing in their life and they're going to be the ones who are actually going to merit a ticket to Olam And this is why we have to make sure that we not only worry about our own self, we also worry about other people. And then he says something a little bit scary. He says, it's going to be very hard for someone who does not worry about other people to make sure that he's going to lift, he or she's going to lift them all with them. It's going to be very hard for them to actually get enough merit, enough reward to get into all about to get into the afterlife because how much profit can you make if you're only making one sale? So I think this idea of us influencing others and reaping the rewards should inspire us to try to also, when we study, when we do mitzvos, whatever goodness that we do, make sure that that ripples outside and affects other people. Of course, you have children, their mitzvos are attributable back to you if you inspire them in the correct way. I think that's one very powerful takeaway of this idea. On the flip side, I want to suggest that it's also inspiring for us because we recognize that nothing is small. There's no such a thing as negligible spirituality. 
everything in the spiritual world is big. Everything is amplified. I could do one small deed and the way the Almighty processes it and the way the Almighty calculates it based upon all the ripple effects, that one small deed, who knows how big it could be. And thus, we shouldn't get despondent. We shouldn't get sad or depressed, God forbid, and say, what do we actually have? No. Every deed, every minor deed, every minor mitzvah is really not minor at all. And with the way the Almighty calculates it, who knows how great it's actually going to be. So I thank you all for listening. I hope everyone is okay. Everyone is safe. Everyone's taking care of themselves and their family and following all the guidelines. And again, please email me. Reach out. Don't be a stranger. Be friendly. My email address is rabbiwobajima.com. I hope you're well. May the Almighty watch over all of us and all the Jewish people. And may we all merit to have this month, the month of Nisan, be a month of redemption as is foretold in the Jewish prophecies. This is the Parsha Podcast. Have a wonderful Shabbos and please God will speak really soon.